30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard In the works of William Shakespeare, fools were clever peasants or commoners who used their wits to outdo members of the elite social class. In classical Greek theater, the character of the rustic buffoon drew its name from the root word peisen, meaning to play as a child. The clown archetype transcends the normal social order, invoking laughter or fear. For an example of the latter, look at the controversy surrounding the new film The Joker. From insane clown posse to it, the clown represents an intrusion of the abnormal into our fragile society. And yet, that same intrusion can be a welcome relief. A jester in the king's court or a children's birthday clown both upend the ordinary and make the festivities one to remember. In the 1970s, Hunter Doherty Adams, better known as Patch Adams, brought clowning into the medical world. By viewing patients as part of a system, which includes doctors, administrators, nurses, parents, as well as the patients themselves, medical clowning disrupts the normal routines of illness and care, creating opportunities for laughter, connection, and relief. Joining our ritual today is Matt Wilson, who served as a medical clown at Sloan Kettering Memorial Hospital for over 10 years. And when not squirting doctors with fake flowers, Matt has found time to win Emmys for his work with the PBS kids show Cyber Chase and tour as a unicycling juggler for Britney Spears. But today, we'll stick to the simple stuff that subverts just enough to rip a new hole in reality as we learn how to clown around. Hello, Matt. Hello, Devin. Wizard Devin, or is it Wizard Devin Pearson? Person, or The Wiz? It's Devin. Devin. You can just call me Devin. All right. Yeah, Devin Person. Hey, Devin Person. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you very much for having me. What's our magic word going to be? Leela. Uh, I believe it's a Sanskrit word uh, of, from the Hindu faith for divine play. Beautiful. One, two, three. Leela. And Stitch. All right. Let's talk divine play, baby. All right. What kind of play do you like? That's a great question. Um, play with others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy, I like games, both whether it's a tabletop, traditional game. Finding the game is a notion that's really important to me. Uh, I believe in the notion of a play community. Mm-hmm. There was a play philosopher by the name of Bernie DeCoven who articulated this notion of of a well-played game, the game that we find when we all come together and we choose to play. We may have done it on the playground as kids. Uh, is that the Homo Ludens guy? Uh, no, no, but that's Hutzinga. Okay. But it's definitely of that lineage. He yeah. was one of the first dudes who kind of like dudes yeah. uh, who art, uh, articulated and philosophized on play and its relation to culture. And then maybe 50 years later, you got um, Bernie. He was like a dude from the 70s. It's so funny to me that like 
like I've taken improv classes and you're learning to do what kids do naturally. Like for adults to play, they need to be like, there's a philosophy and a practice and a rule set behind this. Adults, um, adults are terrible when it comes to play. Adults <laughs> don't know how to play. I think it's systemic and endemic and yeah. Yeah. So how do we get adults to be better at playing? Good question. That's actually kind of my mission these days. I'm mm -hmm. working on a project uh, where I'm attempting to kind of articulate, you know, this thing because if we believe that play is important especially for children how can we prioritize play for children if adults don't know how to prioritize it for themselves great point yeah i think it starts with being together and that's also challenging yes. you know like it's hard it's hard for adults to even be in the same room with each other you know and we have these forms of play that exist online you know Absolutely. like joke thread kind of things yeah. but that's an artifact that emerges from what is kind of a weird detached conversation with a bunch of people alone. And I'm not sure how playful sipping Mountain Dew and typing on your computer. Can well, be you raised a really good point, right? Which is something I go back and forth on. It's like, I never want to judge. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm going to judge, but there's so many, there's so many different ways to play. Solo play, group play, online space and offline spaces. And, um, which is why I think I'm trying to get more specific about play in an offline space. Because mm -hmm. I think play exists in an online space. Oh, totally. Uh, but but uh, in order to just at least attempt to be helpful or attempt some kind of a, a shift in perception or change, much like your ritual podcast, make it, you know, just a little bit better, right? Making these little changes. Exactly. It's like, okay, cool. Well, what about the embodied experience, the, 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 the in-person encounter? Yeah. What um I Ryukon, the the Zen poet, was notorious for playing with children and forgetting to beg. Mm. Like his one function as a beggar, he would lose it because he was too busy playing with the kids in the street, which I always think is like, there you go. Yeah. That's that's a lesson that we can all learn a little bit more of. Now, you got into play, I assumed. Or I, I, which led first, the play or the clowning? The clowning or the play? That's a good question. I think they're interlinked. Uh for me personally, uh I've always kind of identified a, a need to play. I mm -hmm. kind of equate safety with play, feeling like I can play or it's okay to play mm -hmm. or wanting to play or being able to play or being allowed to play. Yeah. When I, when I, you know, think back to memories of childhood and whatnot. And then I also look at like, you know, interpersonal experiences as an adult. Uh, my barometer has always been, can I play? Am I allowed to play? Can we play? Do you yeah. want to come out and play? You know what I mean? And so I, I, I guess play is foundational. And then through that, you know, uh, a big thing about clown, clown's a complicated word, but depending on the tradition that you're looking at, one tradition is uh, has to do with finding the game and, and, and this, this inherently playful and chaotic um, um, essence. What are the different traditions of clowning? I'm going to jump right into the complex part of the pool. Sure. Wow. I mean, that's a whole like conversation, podcast, epic book series. Um, so you've got clown traditions from around the world, yeah. right? The, 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 the have emerged in, uh, from various indigenous cultures. Cool. Honestly, clown and ritual, um, the sacred clown and the notion of the trickster. You know, there's a lot of overlap there depending <laughs> on which culture you're looking at. Um and then I think as a contemporary audience, we often think of clowning as it's come about over the last couple, two, 300 years, mm -hmm. right? From um, street performance, uh, characters, primarily Western figures, specifically Commedia de Art in mm -hmm. Italy and whatnot, um, 
street characters that then were translated to stage characters that then found their way in this new form of entertainment called circus in the 18th century um, where the clown kind of became uh, a, a prominent figure which is how most folks in the states know of the clown is affiliated yeah. with the circus um, but then in Europe in addition to having the circus clown there was the theater clown um, and and these days is that like Pagliacci kind of yeah absolutely well, that's a good point right because then it's like well is it a clown or is it an interpretation of a clown for a work of art mm-hmm. so like like in opera they would take uh, uh, the clown character so many of those operas uh, were taking uh, characters and stories from what were Lazzi and scenario that used to only be a part of street companies from hundred years prior so. Oh wow! Everyone's everyone's been doing remakes for so long. Oh, a- oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We get all up in arms, and it's like, have you read? Have you read Shakespeare? Yep. He, was, he was doing remakes of uh, no, a perfect yeah. example. Absolutely, his clowns too. He was influenced by street performance that predated him. Yeah, because so many of those traditions were oral traditions. And what tradition did you find yourself um, drawn to or falling into? Hmm, what's funny? So, like when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor, but I also wanted to be a clown. And uh, my mom, I mean, I dressed up for a clown, uh, I think when I was like barely two years old. My mom yeah. made me a, a clown costume and I had a clown birthday cake. It's um, not funny how they, like, I, I found a photo of me dressed as a wizard for Halloween and it's, it's like, it's freaky. Wow, yeah. Like, at six, I had it figured out. That's the thing, right? It's like, on the one hand, you kind of want to look back at that and then you're like, well, was that really a thing? And I'm like, well, maybe it was. So, yeah, so like, there was the notion of the clown image and dressing up as a clown for Halloween. And, but then I also got a Fisher price medical kit. So I like to pretend to be a doctor. Um, and then I think when I was in sixth grade, I, I decided I really wanted to be a doctor. Um, but then also my mom got me this book on clowning and uh, it came with my first clown nose. Um, and then when I got, to- were your parents supportive of both dreams or were they like, mm, doctor, please. It's interesting. In general, they were actually always really supportive. Uh, I think I, I, I latched on to the notion of wanting to be a doctor because when I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, adults really like it when kids talk like adults and when kids act like they know exactly what they want to do. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of positive feedback and positive reinforcement. So to say, oh, yeah, I want to be a doctor and I'm going to I'm going to uh, get an Air Force ROTC scholarship and go to Penn State and then I'm going to go to the university, uh, the USIS Uniform Services, University of Health Science in Bethesda and become a pediatrician in the Air Force. So that was the plan I came up for myself before I graduated high school. Wow. Because I was a military brat. Yeah. You know? Um. But then I got to college and I found out about medical clowns or clowns in, in hospitals. And initially it sounds like a terrible idea. You know, the last thing you want to be is in a hospital bed. And this clown uh, 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 when someone's, Seriously? you know, with a scalpel in their hand. Yo, yeah. I, no, absolutely. Ha <laughs> ha, you've got cancer. You know, like, and, and, and for me, I actually never wanted to be approached by a clown or a performer. Um, but I think that created a sense of sensitivity, mm-hmm. you know. And so, so, so when I actually found out about medical clowning as a field, as a practice, how did you discover it? Uh, let's see. I think the first thing I read a lot of a lot of folks know about medical clowns through Patch Adams, mm-hmm. right? So before that movie came out, I'd read his book called Gesundheit, uh, which I thought was super interesting because he was a doctor who began experimenting with humor in, a, in as a doctor, right? So he was a doctor first, who, yes, who then created this notion of clown based mm-hmm. on his experiences in a hospital setting in the 70s. Super interesting and somewhat transgressive. I think my mom sent me a newspaper article about a nurse who was also a clown. 
So again, it's this in, this intersection of actual medicine with this art form. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what I was always drawn to. It wasn't so much that I wanted to be a clown. I wanted to be, or I didn't want to be a, just to be a doctor and I didn't want to be a clown. I wanted to be a clown doctor specifically. Yeah. And there was one program that was doing it through the Big Apple Circus. Uh, they were the first professional medical clown program in um, in the world. There were individuals that had experimented with it, but they were a an official professionally trained organization affiliated with Big Apple Circus. They started in the mid 80s. So if anyone's ever like, oh, would you go to clown college? You're like, fuck you, buddy. I went to clown medical school. It's funny. I mean, I have a lot of friends who went to clown college. I applied to medical school. I applied to clown college. uh, And I got rejected from all of them. (laughs) And uh, yeah, moved to the city to be a clown doctor. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I think reading about the Big Apple Circus's take on medical clowning, I found really profound. And then I got to observe their work. What was that take? Oh, man. I mean, this was like sophomore year of college. And so I was coming into the city, talking to different clowns and circus individuals, just really learning more about what this world was, circus and and clown broadly defined. Because these days, actually, circus has kind of had a, a, on the one hand, it's uh, the traditional forms of circus are kind of on its way out, but new forms of circus and new like it's it's kind of permeated a lot of uh, culture, especially in New York City. And oh yeah, areas. like yeah. burlesque, nightlife, entertainment, Absolutely. trapeze, aerial. There's like a whole renaissance of that. Totally. So that kind of began that renaissance was kind of like mid '90s, mid to late '90s, right? So came into the city, and I observed a couple of clown doctors on clown rounds. And what I noticed was their relationships with the staff, their relationships with the institution, in addition to how they uh, connected with the the patients. It wasn't uh, a performer's agenda. Whereas, oh, look at me, I'm a clown, I'm here to entertain you. They asked permission before they enter into anyone's space. And I mean, it was an improvisational encounter. It was really, really, and they were also virtuosic. Uh, there was a magician and there was a musician. Uh, it was Dr. Feelgood and Dr. Noodle. And they tore it up, man. You know, I mean, just because they had had, they'd been working together for a while. I mean, I didn't know any of this at the time, but it was really cool. And it, it really, uh, it, it, it solidified the notion of, oh, okay, this makes sense to me. I see what it's doing in the institution. So they were doing setting. magic tricks and playing oh, songs. Oh, yeah. And- Absolutely. They're walking through the halls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, because they're, they're, they're extremely emotionally intelligent. Yeah. Because uh, it's all about sensing your environment. You're in a hospital where the stakes are actually life or death. You don't want to be unwanted. No, and that's that's a balancing act, so to speak. And navigating that, I think that's what I don't think a lot of people understand is there's uh, a sense that oh, of course the clowns are wanted. And it's like no, no one's actually wanted in an environment. You got to get permission no matter what, and you have to earn it every moment. And how were they interacting? You you mentioned that they were interacting as well with the the doctors. And oh, the absolutely, and the staff. Yeah. Is, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So I think there's this notion that if you're a, a clown, you have makeup. In this situation, it's very subtle, but there's some kind of a mask or some kind of a barrier, and that's not actually you. When actually, uh, the reverse is true. You're just, you're you. Maybe it's a slightly heightened version of you, you know, but the goal is you found some essence, some notion that people want to interact with, you know, and they they had, they had been there for a long time so there's there's our, our real relationships 
that they're working with. It's kind of like, you know, your friends who are fun to be around. That's who you want to be, you know? Like the person at the restaurant that, like, is, like, the busboy that's joking with everybody. Exactly. And, you know, has the ongoing joke with, like, eight different people and, you know, is asking one person about their kids and then is razzing the other person of, like, oh, were you ate out late last night? Oh, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. I mean, even I think I thought you needed to develop certain skills, which you do, but the skills are almost secondary. The skills provide some uh, surprise, some wonder, and some virtuosity, whether it's the magic or the music. But at the, at the beginning, it's, um, it's this, this inherent humanness. Uh, you're aware of your own self, and you're aware of how you impact others around you. So then how did you start moving into this? Well, the interesting thing was I'd been a performer at Busch Gardens, uh, which is a theme park in Williamsburg, Virginia, since I was in high school. And so that's strolling entertainment. It's improvisation. Uh, were you wearing a costume? Were you playing yeah, a well, even when you were at Busch Gardens, absolutely. One, one area was like this Renaissance-themed, fair-themed area. So, you know, you're speaking with an accent. And yeah. You're helping people play games. And then when I was a, a performer in the entertainment department, one of the shows was a stage show, but a lot of the work I did was street performance, right? Where you, you bring your crowd around. And and that's a big deal in the theme park. Like no one actually wants to see a street performer in a theme park. They're there yeah. to ride the roller coasters. But it's on you to create a positive experience, hold their intent uh, attention. And so I was logging all of these miles as a strolling entertainer that immediately translated to a hospital environment. On top of that, I was pre med. I was an EMT. I started a juggling group at, at, at school. And uh, when I responded to emergencies, I'd respond on my unicycle because I got there faster than the ambulance. Wow. So for me, it was always this intersection of, of healthcare and medicine and the serious scientific side of things, as well as uh, the, the 10,000 hours, if you will, of performance skills. Wait, I'm going to need to pause and zoom in on something. Yeah. How did people respond when there's a medical emergency and suddenly you're hopping off a unicycle yeah. and you're like, I'm here to help? Thrilled because uh, it, it, sometimes it was a suicide attempt. Wow. Sometimes it was a, 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 an overdose of a combination of substances because it was a celebration, but maybe they did yeah. more uh, than they needed to. Uh, or it was a, a, a lacerated tendon. So they were, they were dire circumstances and they were thrilled that I got there as fast as I did and that I knew what to do. But people were like, did they process the unicycle or they were just so in crisis mode? No, they're like, whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm there. You, you know could have I mean? showed and up in a thong on rollerblades and you're like, possibly. I'm ready to go. I got, well, I'm going to The other you. thing too is they knew me usually because I was the unicycle guy on campus. Oh, this is a campus. This thing. is specifically at Vassar. Ah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. So I'm, the, uh, so I'm running the juggling group. Yeah. Uh, it's a small campus. I'm the unicycle guy. Yeah. And I'm also an EMT. So if anything, that Are you actually. the only unicycle guy? In the beginning, yeah, it's funny. I went to Vassar because there had been a history of unicycle guys. Yeah. I had gotten some admission literature where there was a picture of a unicyclist. I'm like, I want to check that place out. And then I think my junior year, uh, a new freshman came in that became a juggling partner and he became a unicycle guy. And so Dimitri Martin has like a one man show that he did at the Edinburgh Festival. And he talks about who he was in college. Yeah. And he was like, I was unicycling around campus being like all right i'm the only guy on the unicycle when i should have been saying hey wait a minute why am i the only guy on a unicycle oh yeah that's the thing right <laughs> like whether you're a magician a juggler unicyclist you know you learn these skills because they're cool mm -hmm. you know maybe there's going to be some social cachet and the reality is 
Maybe not so much. Yeah. Although I will say I was very lucky because I was at Bush Gardens and I was about to mount a six foot unicycle and the individual who became my partner and wife thought that was hot. Wow. And that's the thing, you know, we don't need to impress everybody. We just need to impress the ones that are important. Yeah. Okay. So you're unicycling around, saving lives, stopping suicides. Yeah. And then from there you move on. Did you go to Big Apple? Yeah. So here's the deal. So as soon as I finished college... I uh, was back at the park uh, for one more summer and then moved up to New York with the intention of being a medical clown. Mm-hmm. And so I auditioned for their program and I got in. Uh, but but it actually took a few years. What is the audition like? Uh, it well, it changed over the years. At that point in time, it was pretty cool because they just threw you into the hospital. Yeah. So it was me with some senior medical clowns doing clown rounds. Yeah. And and that was really cool. And it, I mean, and the funny thing is, I didn't know it was a paying gig. Ah. So they thought it was adorable because this was something that I really wanted to do. I didn't know it was going to pay. And so I think it was in the, during the interview section that I found out it was a paying gig that, um, you're like, Oh, all right. Yeah. Um, but then I had, uh, I accepted one more summer, uh, as a management position down at, at the park. So I ended up not working for the program that summer. And then a few years later, another spot opened up. So I eventually did work with them for over eight years. So clown rounds. Yeah. You're going around. Mm-hmm. You're dressed as a clown Mm -hmm. and you're asking for permission before Mm -hmm. you enter spaces. And then where does it go from there? Great question. So, well, first let's talk about like, what does it mean to dress like a clown? Okay. You you, you asked earlier, you know, what's the lineage what the traditions? So often in America, when you think of a clown, there's a, it's a a big colorful costume, really bold, garish makeup. And, And that came from the circus arenas. The clowns would wear bold looks so that they could be seen. At the from, back of the from tent. The bleachers, yeah. Right. That look is what Bozo used in his TV show. That's the look that Pennywise used in it. Yeah. So you have this 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 look, uh, which is specifically an American clown. Conversely, in Europe, although there was uh what's called a grotesque look, which is that exaggerated look, there was also um more of a a, a subtle theatrical approach. Uh, with you know fine features just a little bit of exaggeration so in the hospital we're more of a european approach sometimes there's a nose sometimes there's not um, a little bit of blush a little bit of makeup and i would say it's more eccentric garb Mm -hmm. and so not a not a medical coat oh and a medical coat oh and a medical coat had a white coat absolutely Uh, because i'm a clown doctor i was dr burpenfert yeah so you're there with you we work in teams of two yeah i'm there with my clown partner partner work is really important to me because then you always have each other to play off of. And you have free reign over the hospital. It makes it so much less awkward when you have a play partner. Ding. If you go out and you try and like, like I love going out and having adventures and talking sure. to strangers. But there's that moment where you're talking with people and they're like, this was so fun chatting with you. We got your information. We're going to go now. And then you're like, and I'm back to zero. And I'm going to stand around and hold my drink. And I'm just waiting for the next conversation that I can get into. Absolutely. Whereas when you have a buddy, you're like, that was great. Where's my buddy? I'm going to go jump into their conversation or just hang out with them. And then you're goofing around with them. And then other people are like, oh, let's chat with you two. Absolutely. You're not just lurking. Dang, exactly. Well, anytime, I think anytime you know you have an eccentric look, it's like, well, are they a professional or are they a freak? Yeah. You know what I mean? Not that there's anything wrong with freaks, but the thing is there's this, this the safety and comfort where as soon as there are two people who are eccentric, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then it's a thing. Yeah. And A, you can you know just do your own thing and people can passively watch. But yeah, there's a different onus than if it's just one person. I want to be clear, though, there are medical programs where they do work as solo performers, which is totally valid. And I think that's really cool work. Personally, I prefer a partner 
for that very reason. You got someone to play off of. So it's two people in the hospital. You have free reign everywhere. We got we got medical ID cards. Yeah. We got clearance. And basically, you're attempting to assess implicit or explicit consent, meaning, am I allowed to be here? If it's a public space, yeah. And then you're trying to figure out, cool, who am I going to engage with? If it's a private room, you knock on the door. Uh, before that, you've checked in with the nurses in charge and whatnot because it's regular clown rounds, so you're an ant- you're anticipated. And, you and the nurses might say like, "Oh, this is a good room." Or yeah, like, absolutely. <clears throat> they've they've been having a hard time in room three. Do not bother them. Ding. Exactly. Honestly, that's probably the most important thing for me is the relationships that you have with the staff being integrated into the facility. You know, it's not. There are programs and, and there are performances and there are myriad myriads of kinds of artistic services that come into hospitals. I'm a huge fan of arts and medicine programs in general. Um, but the thing is with those, it's almost like, okay, this is a service, a commodity, uh, and you are the audience, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and with the medical clowning that I really enjoyed, you're, you're working with the team, with the staff, and you're tempted to do something on a different level, yeah. if that makes sense. So you go into a room. Yep. So, aha. So often people immediately assume, meaning if I talk about medical clowning, oh, you're there to make people laugh. And that's actually couldn't be farther from the truth, which wow. is confusing because you're like, oh, clowns make you laugh. It's like, no, not necessarily. I mentioned sacred clown or the notion of the sacred mm-hmm. clown earlier. Like in certain cultures, the clown was an interlocutor between um, the earthly plane and the spiritual plane. And I take that super seriously. Uh, the clown is a volatile spirit. Yeah. Um, people think, oh, clowns are supposed to be funny and cheerful. It's like, no, but there's also a history of dangerous clowns. And there's an ongoing thing. With, Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. And I will never, I don't, I don't defend clowns. You yeah. know what I mean? I think <laughs> the evil clowns are fine, yeah. you know, because to a certain extent, you could also say they're produced by the culture or a reflection of the culture. Totally. You know? So, but specifically in a hospital setting, uh, you want to contribute to the hospital environment you're there to disrupt absolutely you're a playful disruptor um I, I like to describe it as transgressive play but the the notion is you 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 ask permission you meet the energy where it's at you don't deny anything because the thing is you're not there to distract right um uh, i was a supervising clown doctor at memorial sloan kettering mm-hmm. so that's all cancer oncology which i oh, know that's, you're aware that's of. where i go for my medical research program that I'm you're very of. aware of the facility mm-hmm. right and so I'm not there to tell you that uh, you're in the shit, that you're not in the shit, rather. Hong Kong, don't worry about dying. Yeah, no, seriously. I mean, these kids are navigating, you know, existential crises that most of us will never have to navigate. And yet they're still kids. Or most, we'll all have to navigate well, at some yeah. point. Totally. But yeah, yeah, yeah. They got it, the they got it. They got it at an early age. Yeah. And so... It's not about denying that. It's actually acknowledging that somehow. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's explicit. Sometimes it's just by breathing and being in that space. Mm-hmm. And, and and then seeing where you go from there, right? So you meet the energy where it's at. And then the goal is to hopefully, honestly, pro- I imagine there's some parallels to your wizardry work is you're meeting the energy where it's at and you're hoping, hopefully going to shift it somehow. Maybe it's funny. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a beautiful moment. Maybe there's some music. Maybe it's absurd. Maybe it's very quiet. Do you have some specific moments that you could say? Because I feel like there's, I'm, I'm trying to just understand like, yeah, oh, what it's like to be in that room and get past the idea of the door bursts open, two clowns tumble in, yeah, and it's sure. like honk honk juggle it, and you know, absolutely, you, know, you want to see a magic trick, Billy? Yeah, totally. So, like, okay, for example, one of my favorite games to play 
uh, I call elevator music. Mm-hmm. Okay. So me and my clown partner would be waiting in the hallway, not lurking, you know, yeah. just there. And uh, elevator comes and there's never any elevator music in hospital elevators. You know, they're very boring, very sterile. So you get in the elevator and the doors close. So I used to keep a portable speaker in my pocket before everyone had them. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the doors close, you'd hear the girl from Ipanema playing on Hammond, Oregon. Perfect. It's one of my favorite songs. Love that song. And the doors it's close. Such great, it's like such great, like it's like quintessential lady music. And oh, yeah, absolutely. It's such a great song. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Bossa Nova, I'm on a huge Brazilian jazz kick, man. It's, yeah, it's a big, it's, it's great. So doors close, girl from Ipanema comes on. And then there's a moment of disruption. And that's all I'm ever looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've mentioned on, on your ritual podcast in the past, like what's the least you can do? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm interested in because as a, a as an eccentric figure in a hospital, it's easy to overwhelm. Yeah. So what's the least you can do? For me, it starts with eye contact. Mm-hmm. starts by saying hello or you're in the elevator, the doors close. No one has said anything to each other. And all of a sudden the girl from Ipanema comes on. But then as soon as the elevator stops, the doors open, the music stops. Yeah. And the new people get on and they haven't heard it. So then the people who are on the elevator, as soon as the doors close, then they get to see them surprised by this. And then all of a sudden, you know, the energy And then changing. it's a shared joke. It's a shared joke. Exactly. That's all you're trying to do. Create a shared experience. That's one of the things that I've seen so much with my wizardry is I will meet people who are like, you're a wizard. What does that mean? And they're giving me like the fifth degree. Like, you know, it's like all these questions. And then later in the night. I'm walking by them at the party, and they're like, "Wizard, wizard, come over here! Yo, 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 Jenny, you gotta come meet the wizard!" And they're so excited because suddenly it's gone from this new thing for them that they're like, "Wait, I want to blow somebody else's mind. Yeah. Like, I want to tell my friend, oh, I'm gonna go hang out with a wizard." And it becomes like this shared joke, and I've seen that spread around offices and social groups and parties and all kinds of environments. And it's one of my favorite things to just observe. You hit the nail on the head, the shared experience, which I know you've mentioned mm-hmm. in the Ritual podcast before. And going back to talking about play and the play community, it's literally that's where change happens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In, in these shared experiences. It's almost like, like when you were describing just the subtleness of just the girl from Ipanema starts playing. It's like made me think of like a kid's book where there's the whole tableau and you're trying to pick out like what's the odd thing. Yes. And it can't be the most insane thing because nope. then the game's too easy. Mm-hmm. But if it's just a little bit, you've suddenly disrupted normal reality. You've shifted things a little bit and that frees people. The same way that like riding on the subway, if the train stops, New Yorkers will start to talk to each other. Because normal reality has been disrupted, we have a common enemy and we can all go, man, can you believe the MTA, blah, blah, blah. But then I've had like real conversations. Like I've like made friends when we're routed onto another thing and we have to go do some crazy route to get where we wanted to go. And because we've broken the spell of the normal routine of get on, be quiet, look at your book, look at your phone, don't make eye contact, suddenly that spell is broken and human connection is possible. You hit the nail on the head with the normal routine being disrupted, Mm -hmm. right? It's ruptures. Like what is the least thing you can do? Uh, Because if you create that rupture, you know, all of a sudden, again, I'm going to keep quoting your ritual podcast. You've got a new reality. You're creating an alternate reality. You're cracking the sidewalk and something can grow up. Absolutely. Hopefully. Hopefully. There's at least the possibility for it. Too. Exactly. And it's funny. That's all I think in terms of that. That's the other thing that's tricky to talk about. I think in terms of possibility, but more specifically probability. Mm-hmm. So I was a biophysics major, uh, which makes me a huge dork. But so as a result, I think I'm, I'm both a scientist and an artist. 
And I think in terms of probabilities, the thing is with a medical clown, there are no guarantees anything that is going is to happen. Mm-hmm. But based on your experience, your skills, your emotional intelligence, you're hopefully, my job is to increase the probability yeah. that something's going to happen. Which is the whole idea of magic is, you know, if people want cheat code magic where you do this, you stir the pot, you light the candle and it's guaranteed to happen. But that's not really what you want because it's exciting when the friend calls up and is like, I've got a futon I'm getting rid of. And you're like, dude, I just did my little ritual to like get a new bed. Like, this is so perfect. It's funny. I've never actually drawn the comparison to magic or real magic. As magical as I've always thought it was, I really enjoy thinking about it like that too. Yeah, it's like you're creating spaces where the thing that you want to have happen is more likely and more possible and more probable. That's the idea, at least how I see it. So okay, kids in the room. You're in the room. Yeah. What? Let's. I, I want a few more bits aside from oh, the girl okay. from Ipanema, just to kind of anchor my mind sure. on. Sure. Let's see. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I mean, it's so funny because there are a few moments that I remember, but more often I don't always end up remembering what's going on mm-hmm. because one goal I, I liken it to surfing. And this notion of flow, which on the one hand, people have talked about way too much. Yeah. But when you find it, it's a thing. Mm -hmm. And you're literally in communion with this group of individuals. Like, for example, um, I think in in one room, I I love whoopee cushions. Yeah. And I have multiple sizes of whoopee cushions. But not just whoopee cushions to make a fart joke. Like, I find them profound, beautiful, universal, musical percussion, instruments. And but I also like to burp because that's also universal, right? And that's your your doctor's thing. Isn't well, it? see, here's the deal: yes and no. In that, a kid called me Doctor Burp and Fart. Yeah, uh, because I think you know we were playing with whoopee cushions and maybe there were some burps. And then I, I put a spin on it, so it was a German name, right. Burp und Fart, with an umlaut over the a. But that was an example of it's all about empowerment, and the kid took took ownership of that situation and named me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, what else? I mean, there's okay, there's one thing I've written about and I've talked about, but it's probably one of the more profound things that ever happened to me in the hospital, which was I was, uh, it was, it was back at Sloan Kettering, and uh, something that often happens for folks uh, navigating cancer treatment is they have a port mm. uh, placed in their skin uh, so that they have uh, easy access for intravenous treatments, right? And so uh, part of having a port is it has to get flushed on a regular basis. Yeah. Really unpleasant, really uncomfortable. Got to do it. Yeah. Okay. So I was there with my my compatriot, Dr. Bovine, and he knew the kid, right? So we already had a relationship. And the kid was like maybe four or five years old, um, you know, little boy, Southern accent. And he was going to go get his port flushed. And he invited us to go with him. Mm. Like, cool. Awesome. So we're there playing, you know, doing a magic trick. The nurse comes over with the needle to flush the port. And he starts cussing and screaming. Uh, and it like totally turned around. And the thing is, you want to pay attention to this, right? Yeah. Like initially things are going great. But as soon as the kid's upset, again, we're not there to change anything. We want to respect, you know, what's happening. And so we said, hey, can we, can we, uh, should we go and come back later? He stopped crying. He looked at us. He's like, oh, no, I want you to be here. We're like, okay. So then we start playing, you know, a song. And the nurse comes over with the, the needle. He's like, oh, God damn it. Fuck you, bitch. I hate you. I mean, we're talking. He was the bluest kid I'd ever heard. And, you know, we looked at him again. And we're like, oh, well, you know, should we go? He's like, oh, no, no, you, you can stay. 
And it was super interesting. We, we would do something. He'd be laughing. But then the nurse would come, you know, about to stick a needle in him. And he'd <laughs> freak out, of course, as you would. And went back and forth from being playful and, and, and having fun to, to crying and screaming and cussing. And that's kind of where I learned we're not there to distract. We're not there to change anything. We're actually there to kind of maintain this. There's a duality of both joy or play and suffering. Mm-hmm. Which is messier. It's Again, that's not what anyone ever wants to hear or talk about because it's not like, oh, the clown comes in and everyone's laughing. It's like, oh, no, it's a much more human experience, man. It's way messier. Well, there's a, there's a, a pressure release aspect of humor. And after my mother died, I was reading a book on like the science of bereavement and grief. And uh, one of the things that I thought was so interesting was they just said humor is such a vital part of this because it is it gives relief to everyone who is taking care of the grieving person. Oh, that's a if, whole other conversation. You, Caretaking and whatnot. Yeah. Like if you can't give those people that little break, it becomes exhausting and you burn them out yep. and then they'll pull back from you because it's just such a constant bummer. Whereas someone, even if it's like their partner committed suicide in front of them and they're totally fucked up about it, but they're able to like make these little jokes here and there in between sobbing and you know the various yeah. other things they're going through everyone can kind of take a breath and be like okay cool and even they can take a breath and be like okay cool so I, I see what you mean where being able to have the clown is interrupting the routine of worried parents and relatives that are visiting you and doctors that are coming in to give you weird news that might be good or might be bad and all the procedures it's something that's just different yeah and it does it doesn't have to be a salve it's just different and that can be enough and i'm glad he brought up caregivers because again that's so important to me often i feel like when people talk about arts and medicine programs or, or medical clowning the focus isn't on the patient as it should be but at the same time there are multiple stakeholders in any kind of medical environment caregivers care providers family members and staff like they're all a part of this dynamic and and my hope and my goal is that our intervention or our presence you know, we're going to have, hopefully, have an impact on multiple levels of a relationship, which will then continue once we're gone. Yeah. That you're able to add something that stays. In, Absolutely. In the yeah. Whether it contributes to a sense of, I mean, an ideal world. Well, that's why I kind of believe in the importance of sustained artistic engagements. Like, it's not a one-off. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As, as beautiful and as lovely as it sounds like, oh, an artist can come in and you can have a beautiful moment. And there's value there. I see even more value in in a sustained creative engagement in the long run because that's how you lead. That's what leads to institutional change, hopefully, which is what I'm really interested in. What that that makes me think specifically of my favorite uh, subway performer, uh-huh. Prince I Asula, love subway performance. Prince Asula, the Mystic Drummer, who used to he was in the Bronx, but then he was also at the West Fourth Stop in New York City, and I got to know him because I would he would he was a Caribbean guy old would wear a suit plays drums and then he has a whole list of songs that he will sing and they're all like Bob Marley and Michael Jackson and Marvin Gaye and all of these other songs there's like some police songs he'll change the list up it's all hand drawn with marker I've never encountered him oh he's great he's great and he'll just be like Rasta Rasta you pick the next song and then they're like okay like play this and then he he plays the drums he's got this echoey microphone he sings it and then he goes on to the next one and he's he's amazing he's just such a like brilliant smile and great vibes and it was through the sustained engagement that I like, he be- began to recognize me. I obviously recognized him. 
it would make my day when I would come into the subway and I'm in a grouchy mood. I'm leaving work. And then I'm like, ah, oh, Prince Azula's here. What's up? And I go over and he's like, yo, Dread, what's going on? Because I got a big beard and he's like, we'll pound it out. And he's like, you pick the song. And then he'll play it. I'll give him a five. I'll get on the train. And I'm like, wow, my day is totally turned around because of that one little micro interaction. Absolutely. And the familiarity is a really important part of it that I think we lose so mm -hmm. often in the sea of anonymity that we often find ourselves waiting. Through. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Uh, familiarity, trust. I, I, I will defend Showtime on the subway until the day I die. Absolutely. Now, here's the deal. I'll also defend your right not to like it, and it can be terrible, yeah. but there's potential there. They can change, man, when it's good. It's it so is, good. Mm. For for the non-New York listeners, Showtime is when um, a bunch of young dancers will get on the train, and they'll yell, what time is it? Showtime, Showtime. Showtime. And then they'll clear out space, and then they'll do something that's like a cross between break dancing and pole dancing. It's and they're using, they're using the subway poles. It's phenomenal. They're like kicking their shoe off and catching on their head. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And it's divisive. I mean, I think actually de Blasio cracked down on it quite a bit because I've seen oh, it so much less. Absolutely. No, the, the, the street performing is considered panhandling in New York City. And it's, it's, it's a racist policy and it's fucked up. Can I say fucked up on your podcast? Oh, you can say whatever you okay, want. Okay, cool, awesome. And yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's going back to the Giuliani days, mm -hmm. and cities are only, in my opinion, cities are only better when you have a vibrant street performing community. Absolutely, no. I mean, I think there's these things. Like, I I just remember when I moved here, I had a roommate that complained about Showtime, and I was like, no. I don't want to live in a city where we go to the lowest common denominator of who's the grumpiest, yeah. who hates things the most. Sometimes it sucks. I've had people get on when I'm trying to listen to a podcast and they're playing the tuba and I'm like, good Lord, like I don't want to deal oh, with this. Absolutely. But I've also had magical experiences where the train's going over the bridge and the city is lit up and someone's playing cello on the train and the whole car is quiet and we're not talking. We're all having a shared moment and it's magical. And I think that's the thing. It's like, sacrifice a little bit of what you had in mind to be open to these sorts of transformative experiences. Yes, it's a public space. I mean, granted, you have to pay a fee to navigate a public space, but it's a public space. And yeah. I find I'm so invested and interested in performance in public spaces. Technically, one thing I really like about medical clowning, especially if it's, a, a say, in Harlem Hospital, New York Health and Hospitals, or um, Jacoby in the Bronx, those are public hospitals. Mm -hmm. So then the performance is happening in a public space that anyone actually potentially has access to. Yeah. So let's switch into the uh, the spell portion of this okay. and figure out what is something that people can do to bring clowning or play or... I mean, I, I, I don't think we want to tell people to dress in clown costumes and just walk into hospitals. We'll probably leave the medical clowning to the medical clown yeah, professionals. That's probably a good idea. But what's something that we can do to, to bring the spirit into the lives of our listeners? That's a great question. I've been thinking about it a little bit. I think it starts, it's funny, it starts with um, looking and breathing. Okay. It literally starts with uh, looking uh, for eye contact, acknowledgement, if you will, and breathing. Okay. Which I know is not like sexy or dramatic. Um, it's not like sea monkeys, the promise of sea monkeys, you know, just yeah. add water. But I'm telling you, I mean, that's where the magic starts. It starts with eye contact. So eye contact. Acknowledgement, consent, mm -hmm. and literally breathing together. And then what's, because I think that's the thing that a lot of people get to, the, you know, we'll make eye contact. We'll make that nervous eye contact with someone and kind of share a smile. What's a way to kind of open that flower just a little bit more? Man, I don't know. 
I'll huh? tell you why. Because honestly, I walk around the city and even even getting to that point, yeah. it's really fucking hard um, for a myriad of reasons, which is fine. Um, honestly, I would actually think it actually start. I it needs to start with your friends. I was about to say, let's switch to friends because yeah. strangers are hard. Even dressed yeah. as a wizard. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for the ones who are going to engage to get on the train, which is another part of it, actually, too. It's that's the notion of eye contact, breathing and waiting. You are you're looking mm. to see who's giving me permission. Yeah. But yeah, I would say it actually starts with hanging out with your friends. So you're hanging out with your friends. Yep. You're at the same bar that you always sit at. It's another mm-hmm. Wednesday night at Hanahan's. How do you bring a little bit of clown magical play into the experience? Flipping coasters. Flipping coasters. Yeah, if, if we're getting specific. Because I feel like, how can you find... Okay, it, it all boils find down to... Find a game. Yeah, find a game that you all agree to play together. Because the fact is, play and games can be authoritarian. Yeah. You know, that's what happens in a corporate environment often. When, when play is prescribed, it's no longer play. It's potentially yeah. assault. So then part of the challenge is, how do you and I start by finding a game that we can play together. Right. Uh, so in a bar, I mean, I like flipping coasters. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that because like even playing a regular game, like if it's like a board game, we're all yeah. going to play Settlers of Catan, the room will split into the people that are like, these are the rules. I'm going to set it up. I'm going to give the rule explanation. I'm going to look it up when there's a dispute point. We're not going to move forward and just call it. We're going to like find out what the rules say. And then the other people who are like, I'm going to go smoke. Somebody take my turn. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And like, there's this like intense divide that comes around yeah. games. Because well, there's a commitment, right? Like when it comes to a game, how, I mean, if you've never played it before, it's funny. But I think, again, I think about this a lot. There's the teaching of the game or the learning of the game. Like that's actually a part of the play process because if the learning or the teaching of the game is not a positive experience, then you're fucked. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and I, games are a container for play. I love board games, but then also what are the what are the games that we can find together? What are the playground games, you know, that we used to play? Honestly, you know what a perfect game is? Can't really do it in a bar, but Duck Duck Goose mm. is a perfect game. And I think if adults, I mean. So there's this guy's name, Stuart Brown, Dr. Stuart Brown, PhD in play, uh, PhD, I mean, PhD, I think in psychology, yeah. he's a play expert. And one of his favorite things to do is is to have an individual do a play history because play is highly specific and highly personal. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like fashion. Uh, you you kind of go back in time and you think, okay, cool. What are some of your early play memories? And so maybe that's actually part of the spell is to with friends talk about what are your earliest experiences with play bingo i like that i like the idea of talk to your friends make eye contact breathe talk about play and then see if you can say let's play a game thank you matt hey thank you devin for more of matt wilson's work visit beepbeepboing.com and to keep on playing the magical game that is this podcast as a ritual Reach one hand out now and pat yourself on the back because you're already doing it. Just by listening to these words, you are growing the magic and helping us bring exciting new energies into the year to come. So beep, beep, boing, boing, be silly, have fun. <laughs>